Hello, everyone, and welcome to Call Your Hits, a Stormriders Airsoft podcast. Thanks for joining us, everyone. As you can imagine, since creating our Discord channel, as well as our YouTube channel, we've received a lot of different questions about all facets of Airsoft. In particular, on the Discord, we have a lot of really good conversations about, you know, game modes and safety and upgrades and all this kind of stuff. That being said, today, we thought we would round up some of the questions that we've been asked by people, uh, both on our Discord as well as on our YouTube channel, and really dive into them a little bit on the podcast and have some conversations. So without further ado, let's jump right in with one of the comments that was given to us on YouTube, actually. This comment says, I've recently upgraded my gun's air seal parts and I'm happy with the results. This weekend, though, I played at a different field and my gun chronoed a bit under where it was last week, about 10 to 15 FPS. Should I be concerned? So, Pat, why don't we dive into this a bit? 10 to 15 FPS variation. Is that a big deal? Uh, if you were getting it shot, like that much variation every shot, then I would suggest that probably something has gone wrong with your ear seal upgrade. Uh, but it's fairly normal to see a little bit of dip once things sort of settle out. You're going to have slightly less silicone in there than you did when you started. Um, and just, you know, your spring tension settling and everything uh, has to happen every time you open the gearbox, pretty much. Uh, so I wouldn't expect it to be uh, changing like that again and if it does you should crack it back open and have a look but if you just did the ear seal you know as long as it doesn't dip again you're fine yeah right one of the things that's also worth noting is you know if you play at a different field and they use a different chrono that can also account for some of the variation that you see now if you saw a 10 to 15 fps variation like from one week to another using your same chrono at home or wherever in the exact same way then that would be that could be something you want to look into like pat was saying you know if it keeps happening you you may want to look into it because you've eliminated the chrono as of as a variable of what could be causing this this fps drop but the reality is if you hit the field and the person is using maybe a cheaper chrono or perhaps even a better chrono more accurate than yours um, and they're using it differently maybe your gun is not in the exact same position maybe it's further in or further out from uh, you know the actual sensor you don't really know exactly where all of that is every time so that can also account for some of those differences right yeah, absolutely. You know, we've definitely had issues with uh, people buying, you know, your $5 chronograph in the past, mm -hmm. uh, and those don't stand up, right? Yeah, or using paintball chronographs is another thing that we see frequently, because in some cases, paintball fields and airsoft fields actually share the same space. I know we do uh, here in St. John's, and a consequence of that is you really can't use a paintball chronograph for airsoft. I mean, Let's, let's be clear. You certainly can uh, use it, but it's not going to be as accurate as a purpose-built chrono. Yeah, I mean, the, the chrono thing is definitely significant, you know, um, and one of the big issues is wear and tear on them. And this isn't a thing that really necessarily gets talked about or thought about, but like even our team's chronograph is definitely um, old and beaten up at this point, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, because people who don't know how to use it have used it uh, and it's been used at a ton of games and people have just shot the hell out of the inside of it and sometimes you get a ricocheting bb and it pops a sensor yeah and it's just like well that's uh you know that doesn't make this thing completely useless but it definitely decreases my willingness to rely on its results and like field ones you know they're not replacing them every two weeks and they shouldn't be 
Um, but it does mean that it's like, yeah, it's it's here, give or take. But yeah, Phil's point of if you're using two different chronographs and you're getting two different readings, um, my first instinct would be to go, that's probably the chronographs being not the same device um, and not necessarily in the same shape or conditions or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the biggest thing is, I think, for me, uh, you know, if I see a big variance between testing at home and testing at the field, which I often do, eh, that's fine. You know, um, well, I shouldn't say a big variance. If I see a variance, if I see like a 30 FPS drop, I start to get concerned. Yeah. Um, you know, but the biggest thing in terms of having a look at your, uh, your seal parts and going, oh, is this upgrade working is what is your consistency shot to shot, right? So if you run five shots through your chrono at home, you want to see a very small, like two, three no more than four FPS after upgrading your seal parts uh, variation. If you go to your field and you run it through their chronograph and it gives you a different number, but the variation's the same, you're fine. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing that really needs to uh, to really be thought about is, you know, do I have an air seal problem or not? And I mean, if your variation shot to shot is high, right? You know, five or 10 between shots, you're shooting like 380, 365, 390. That could be indicative of a problem with your gun. But if you're shooting 381, 382, 380, 384, right? Then you're probably fine, even if you measure 400 at your house instead of 380. Yeah, exactly. Um, And especially if that is true, you know it's just a chronograph difference. It has nothing to do with, um, with the air seal issue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it could suck in a situation where maybe you're, you know, you're riding that line of what's acceptable field limit. So if you're shooting, like for us, like our field limit is 1.60 joules, right? If you're at home and your gun is registering in the chrono as 1.60, 1.59, 1.60, and you go to the field and it's, you know, reading 1.61, 1.60, 1.61, that can kind of suck for sure. Um, But I would also suggest that, you know, field limits aren't targets to achieve, but rather things to be aware of, right? So... Yeah, well, I mean, we did that uh, last year with my airsoft gun, right? I was running my setup very much in, like, that DMR FPS range, and um, I just hit too high on their chronograph for a week, and I was like, well, uh, I didn't bring another gun, so I guess I have to go home or play with someone else's if anyone's got a spare. No one did. So I went home and took my gun apart and put a, you know, 400 FPS instead of a 420 in, and there you go. It means that I don't get to... Uh, achieve quite the same performance that I liked out of my heavier spring, but um, the field FPS limits are what they are and they were updated. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, but the bottom line is that's what they feel will keep their players safe. And, you know, if you have hung out with us on Discord and had conversations, like we're big on that. We're big on player safety. We want to make sure that everyone is, you know, uh, playing by the rules to keep everybody else safe. And that includes us, right? We don't think we're better than the rules. They apply to us equally. And I remember myself, I remember I used to have an M120 in my Mark 18 a few years ago. And it would take like a thousand rounds for the thing to eventually settle in and get under field limit, right? Because right out of the box, it was shooting like one point well, not out of the box, but once we'd upgraded it, the air seal was so good, we were shooting 1.61, 1.62 joules. And it's only after about a thousand rounds that we were getting to like 1.59, 1.58, which is fine, but it's not really ideal. It's not really what you want to be doing. Now, I don't have any concerns about passing Corona anymore because I'm shooting like 1.38, 1.39. That's plenty. So to answer the question again, you know, if you're seeing that variance 
from a chrono, make sure that it's actually not the chrono giving you the variance first. Uh, and if your variance shot to shot is the same as what you had at home, then you're probably fine. Really, it's only an issue, like Pat was saying, if you're, the variance is quite large, like, you know, 50 FPS or something crazy like that, or you see that variance shot to shot. At that point, different conversation. But don't be too concerned about variations between chronos at different fields. All right, on to our next question. Okay. So question number two. Hello, Phil. I'm a huge fan of the Storm Riders and your YouTube channel, as well as your podcasts. Thank you very much. Uh, I listen to them weekly, and I'm always looking to you guys for advice on Airsoft. I was curious, what sling do you use in Airsoft? I saw in your sling video on YouTube that you said you used a Spec Ops Lone Star, but I'm not sure if you still do or not. And I'm not really sure where to buy a good quality sling or where to start. So do you have any suggestions? Thanks, big fan. So... Thank you very much for all those kinds words and support. So absolutely, a few years ago, I was still using a uh, Spec Ops Lone Star single point sling. Um, Pat used that same sling too for a number of years. And I think we've talked about it in the podcast. Like that is an excellent sling. Yeah. If you want a single point, if you're doing things that a single point is good for, it's fantastic. Um, you know, it uh, even for a tall guy, it gets a little cumbersome if you're running a long gun on it because you knock yourself in the you know, knees and other bits, uh, perhaps more often than you'd want to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it sort of like, if you let it hang, it doesn't necessarily hang above the ground as much as you'd like, but it worked really, really well. It was indestructible. I mean, both of us, I think, passed them on to new play, like other players, um, or like sold them. Well, maybe you did, but mine was great. I had, I had mine for 10 years and it's still in great shape. I still have it. I'm not giving that thing away. Huh. That thing is All great. Right. Like right. who well, knows? I sold mine, <laughs> uh, or like tossed it to one of our teammates or something. Yeah. Um, and like, I know I'd used it for eight years and it was just completely fine. Yeah. Uh, I just, at the time was running, um, a mixture of an LMG that we didn't keep for very long and a long rifle. And I was like, you know, I keep putting myself in these situations where I need this rifle strapped close to my body and not moving around so it doesn't bang off of stuff, I should probably get a sling that accommodates that. <laughs> yeah, especially the Mark 46 was like really heavy, so it's oh not ideal God. for a single yeah. point sling. So single point sling, I used for years, like Pat was saying, he used his for eight years, I used mine for like almost 10. Great single point sling. It's a real steel sting, sling, so it's like, you know, 60 or $70 Canadian, but you never have to worry about dropping your rifle, excellent build quality, all that stuff is great. That being said, for the most people on the team who do use the sling, we have progressed to using two-point slings. In particular, we've talked about it a lot in this podcast, the Ferro Concept Slingster. Um, for us, the Slingster represents the gold standard of two-point slings. That's just the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, they're fantastic. Um, I do not see any reason to use any other two-point sling. Uh, I've used a few, um, but it does everything I want it to. It's indestructible. It's comfortable. Uh, it's lightweight. Uh, I have absolutely zero fear that it will ever fall apart or that my gun will fall off of it. Um, I mean, I carried the Mark 46 on it, it, and the gun I'm carrying right now is much, much lighter. Uh, it's just a really effective sling. Um, you know, it's adjustable on the fly, which is fantastic, so I can use it for a bunch of different kinds of shooting. Um, you know, sometimes I sling it just around my neck and use it as a kind of weird one point mm -hmm. uh and when i need it zipped in tight to my body because someone's broken their gun and is asking me if i can take a look at it in the middle of a game <laughs> or you know in between games no problem uh if i want to zip it close and tuck it into my back so that i can climb something i can climb something without you know beating my gun up without hitting me myself in the face with it any of that stuff 
Yeah, it's it. really, it's very hard to understate how much control you have over your rifle with a two-point sling like that, especially if you ever, like, release it to, like, transition to a sidearm, or like Pat was saying, if you have to do any sort of work with your with both of your hands, you know, when you drop it, it doesn't dangle anywhere like once it's cinched in properly when you drop it it just sort of hangs out where it's supposed to hang out you can even there are techniques that you can do where you flip the rifle upside down as part of dropping it and it stays even tighter to your body because of the um, just the friction from the sling it's extremely easy to manipulate uh, to use to work with if you want to you know shoulder transition or just loop it around your neck if you know you're doing a lot of like going back and forth like there's a lot of techniques and you know things that you can learn to do with that sling because there's so many different things you can do with it right there's just so many different applications for it so you can train in and practice a lot with a single point sling you're you're a, you're a lot more limited now there are benefits to single points especially if you're using like a, a shorter airsoft gun um or you're you know in cqb a lot or all this kind of stuff which is fine and i mean i was well served by the single point but the two point for us is really uh, the direction that we want to go it gives us the kinds of options that we want on the field and fundamentally like the slingster is for our money, the best that you can get. Now, there's other types of two-point slings that are out there. I know Magpul makes a two-point sling, also a two-point to one-point. Uh, I know Vickers Tactical has one, Blue Force Gear. Like, there's a bunch of different options, but for our money, the slingster is where it's at. The challenge, though, is that when you talk about money, it is it is expensive, right? Especially if you're Canadian and you're looking for a Canadian retailer. So Faro Concepts is a Canadian company, but they manufacture all their stuff in the US just for a supply chain kind of business. So getting one in Canada is, you know, you're looking at like $80 for the two-point sling, and that's not including hardware, right? You can get it from like, I think 911 Supply is one that we've we've bought from yep. in the past. Um but the bottom line is, it's this is very much a case of buy once, cry once. If you spend the money to buy a Slingster, you will only ever have to do that one time. It will work fine on every single gun that you own. You'll be able to use it on any platform that you want. And it will never fail you because it is meant for real world applications, right? It is a real steel sling. And consequently... The kinds of abuse that we're going to put it through in Airsoft is nowhere near the kinds of abuse that uh, it will be put through in the real world, right? So it's really a buy once, cry once kind of deal. And, you know, I've used, like, not that I'm, you know, uh, I guess opposed to the other two points, but just to sort of reinforce how much I love this thing. Uh, I've used the Repro Magpul ones. I've used the real Magpul ones. Uh, you know, they're great. They do everything you want uh, for the most part, but... Uh, the adjustability on the Slingster, um, on the fly, just the slide lock on it is amazing. It is a thing that nothing else I tried had. Um, it's super comfortable. I mean, we already talked to death the fact that it's indestructible, but like it is. There you go. Yeah. Um, I'm not exactly easy on gear. And like if Phil can't break it, no one can. <laughs> um, but there's a huge amount of value to knowing that no matter how many times you let go of your primary to do something with your hands, it will always be in the same place for you to pick it back up and resume shooting or do whatever you need to do with it. And most importantly, that your primary is not going to end up on the deck because the sling broke. <laughs> yeah, because let's face it, right? Like these are airsoft guns. We've talked about this before, but like they're cool. They're awesome. They're expensive toys that break when they hit concrete. So like every time you drop it, you're like, oh, 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 no, please. And just having the peace of mind that, yeah, you can let you know i ran this with my um 203 as well right like i ran this with the 203 setup on my rifle you can let it go it will take whatever weight your airsoft gun has unless you're like rocking a minigun and even then you 
might be able to get away with it. Um, you know, but you can let it go. It'll hang where it's supposed to hang. You can do whatever you need to and you can get your hands back on it. You won't lose your weapon. It'll be exactly in pretty much the same place every time. Yeah, totally. Yep. Not much more to say about that, guys. Pharaoh Concepts Slingster, our gold standard. Not a sponsor, but we're open. <laughs> so the next question that we have here is... Um, Hey guys, although I enjoy serious scenarios and objective games, it can sometimes be a lot of fun to do something a bit silly. And I enjoyed hearing about the James Bond games you guys were talking about last week. I'm wondering, what is the silliest game that the Stormriders have ever been involved in? Uh, I'm just going to go straight out there and say I played a game of TTT with a sword. Yeah. Um, no guns, just, you know, I brought a sword to a gunfight, uh, admittedly to an urban gunfight, but like, that's definitely the silliest thing I have done playing Airsoft. Um, unless you count being a hostage uh, or like a down pilot in a scenario and being like, all right, guys, you have to carry me. <laughs> yeah. Where my mind goes with this uh, is the operation game that we ran at Frontline many, many years ago, Operation <laughs> Last Refuge. <laughs> so if you guys have heard us talk about the fields we play at, you would probably be familiar with us talking about the village field. And the village field is one of a series of different fields that are at the at the local field front line. So there's a couple of different areas and a couple of different, for lack of a better term, maps, let's call it. And the village is one of the most popular ones because it's just, it's very open, lots of CQC stuff, etc. And Frontline has had scenarios over many years, and the village always ends up being the center of the action. Basically, what ends up happening is one team takes control of the village, and then all uh, the other players will either fight to take the village back or defend the village from being taken back. And really, every other part of the field sort of gets forgotten about or left behind. Yeah, you end up with 60 people clustered around one corner, one quarter, really, of the field. Yeah, which we thought kind of sucked. And we're like, well, it's not well, it's not that it sucks, but it's sort of like, yeah, you know, once you've done that a few times, you're like, all right, well, what's what's the point? So we decided that we were going to, well, we offered them to run a scenario and they accepted. And the, the premise behind this is that both teams would start at either end of the field and the village, however, would be inhabited by locals right and the locals were like these you know in the story were just like these crazy sort of prepper kind of guys or whatever and both teams would have to work with them basically befriend them do work for them gain their trust in order to be able to move into the village but at no point were they supposed to actively engage uh, with those villagers um, or, you know, upset them in any way. Basically, command was like, you can't do anything that would upset them, just work with them cooperatively. And so the intent, the design intent for us with this game was that we, the Stormriders, would be these villagers and NPCs. We would operate out of the village, which would give us an area for us to stage and plan for missions and, you know, count scores and just run the the, the logistics of running a game, right? Like you, like you do in any sort of event or scenario. And allow for some sort of, you know, uh, sort of role-playing elements to, to exactly. be in there as well, right? Yeah, so then we also acted as the villagers. So yeah, we had our game staff hut and all this kind of stuff and our, our scoreboards and timers and radios and all that. But then we also acted as the villagers. And so different members of the team had different responsibilities. We basically, we gated off the village and we said, no, if you want to come in, you have to check your weapons. And people would give, uh, we would give players a hard time. And in particular, the silliest thing that happened for me in that game was that um, we had a few people on the on the team, and myself included, who 
speak languages other than English, namely French. So my first language is French, and we have another player on the team uh, who uh, was a uh, an infantry officer in the Canadian Forces, and as a consequence of that, he had some second language training. And so when people came to the village gates to say, hey, how's it going, etc., they were speaking to me, and I was speaking to them in French, and none of them knew how to speak French. So immediately, that created this sort of like, Oh my God! What do we do now? Like we're at a we're at an impasse, and so they've got me yelling at them in French to do certain things, and they have no idea what what I was saying. So it created a lot of like like silly tension and all this kind of stuff. And as the game progressed and the, the day wore on, uh, stuff in the village started getting sillier because we would we would work with them in English, but we would use like you know weird accents or we would misunderstand on purpose what they were saying, and it just created a lot of like confusion and fog of war and. In addition to everything that was happening in the village, the game was still going on outside, right? Like they were still fighting for objectives. So that led to a a relatively silly day. But I think overall, like I have very good memories of that game. And I think most people do as well. Oh, man. I mean, that game was hilarious. Um, you know, things that Phil has left out of his account include uh, there was a recon piece at the beginning where like three or four players from each team were let out early to do recon of what we'd done to the field. Um and uh, watching Phil just scream in French at two completely confused dudes who had no idea what was going on was, like, one of the high points of my life. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, they had, like, full-on, like, freeze fight or flight, and they had full-on freeze deer in headlights. Like, they had no yep. idea They're what to do. What the hell, guys? Um, yeah. Which was awesome. Uh, and then uh, sort of shortly after that, we were approached at that side of the of the village by uh like our barricade was approached by a dude who spoke french not super well necessarily but like he was doing french immersion or something he was a kid in high school yeah um, yeah and it's like hey we brought a translator and we were like huh well let's see where this goes yeah very ingenious <laughs> yeah um you know but like people it was very funny but people you know responded to it in a clever way uh and so like a big chunk of that uh, area that we'd cordoned off has sort of like uh fake turf on it um that's always like covered in bbs and stuff so we spent like parts of the day like being farmers and raking the 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 turf and like cleaning it up so the village was actually i think a lot tidier than it usually is when we were done (laughs) (laughs) you know but um you know i think also one of the high points was like we told them repeatedly that they shouldn't engage the villagers like you just you know and there was a point in the day where uh the two teams started like shooting into the village and we yelled at them to stop and they continued. So we started, just went and got our guns and started shooting back and they surrendered to the villagers. Yes. <laughs> it's just like, no, we're just, we're done. We're going to go back to shooting at each other. Yeah. I remember as well, uh, at some point, Cal coming out in like a, his like really like skinny shorts and a bathrobe and flip flops, like coming out of like one of the buildings, like he'd just been like mid shower or whatever, just really just foolish stuff like that. But it added oh, a man. lot of just fun. And I think, you know, we've talked about that in, in the podcast before, but, you know, fun is why we play Airsoft. And it sometimes can be, um, it can be easy sometimes to overlook that. You know, you're just, you're training, you're really focusing on your performance. And it, sometimes you can just overlook having having a bit of fun. And so games like that for, for us, uh, for me in particular, when I look back on, like that was, that was a lot of fun, a really good opportunity to do things a bit differently, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like it, provided us with a weird game type, which was fun. Um, but it also provided with us with just a lot of opportunity to interact with the other players. And, like, they see a lot of our sort of serious, like, you know, oh, yeah, game face, because we're 
we're playing and we're trying to, you know, win and we're trying to play sort of uh, an aggressive play style, usually, as we've talked about before. Um, but it gave people a lot of uh, chance, you know, in the local play community to see the fact that we're really a bunch of idiots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, totally. you know, if nothing else, we were in there for like six hours and like, yeah, we were running stuff and doing missions and like a few people would leave to go to another part of the field and mess around with the teams and like create objectives for them and stuff. But by and large, you know, we had at any given time six guys who didn't have a ton of stuff to do. And we're like, all right, you know, what dumb thing can we do now? <laughs> yeah. And from a game organization perspective, I think one of the things that, uh, which I know is not the point of the questions, but I think was really effective if you're thinking about organizing a game yourself is as the, let's say, main organizer myself, like I had all my, my stuff planned out, and like the missions and times and all this kind of stuff. But when it came to like the checkpoints and when it came to like the roles in the game and what you were going to get people to do, ultimately, I don't really care what you do. Right. So at one of the checkpoints, they were like really, really hardcore. Like, no, you got to check in your weapon and check out your weapon and all this kind of crazy stuff, which I didn't tell them to do that. They just went ahead and say, yeah, that's what we're going to do to just mess with the players even more. That's fine. Right. You can as an organizer, you can sort of relinquish the controls a little bit and just let people, you know, have their imagination. At some point, there was a whole like storyline with the mayor of the village being, you know, voted on and there was an election you had to protect them and then you know they assassinated them and like just kinds of crazy and for me as a game organizer i'm like i don't care what happens my missions are still going the game is still going people are having a good time <laughs> what are you guys doing over there oh we're assassinating the mayor uh, good enough yeah carry on and like but from from the game organizer's point of view that's work that you don't need to do right you can just let other people handle it and then you can focus on the on the bigger picture of the the overall of the game so anyways uh, that's not really part of the answer, but I think that's probably the the silliest, most fun that I had as an airsofter was was really getting that. I wasn't even playing that game, not really, right? That was the most fun that I'd had. Um, and just just before we leave that one, I want to note that uh, also the people at the uh, checkpoints at some points were like bribed with snacks. Like people were like, "We will give you a pizza if you let us bring our sidearms," and people were like, "Sure, bye." Yeah, yeah, exactly. So thanks for that question. That's a that's a good one to reminisce. Yeah, absolutely. That was. It was just fun to think back on. <laughs> so next one. Uh, hey, Pat and Phil, I know you guys have mentioned it in the podcast before, but what is the big purpose of shimming your gears? How much does it actually help and why do people do it? Does it really make a big difference? Uh, so I'm going to answer the last question in that string first. Yes, it absolutely makes a big difference. Uh, so the short version and you've heard Pat's short version before, so we'll see how, <laughs> we'll see how this goes, uh, is that the height of your gears changes how the teeth mesh. And so the, the biggest purpose of shimming is to make sure that the teeth mesh fine, but that the other parts of the gears are not touching, right? You do not want friction between the gears except on the specific contact points intended. Because if there is, they will grind to a stop and lock up almost immediately. Uh, and best case scenario, your gun locks solid and stops shooting. And worst case scenario, you have to buy new gears and maybe a new motor. Um, you know, it's, it is a bad scene. So um, the goal in getting sort of, you know, a good shim job is to have it so that the gears spin freely without any excess contact uh, and subsequently so that they work correctly when you put a motor in. Uh, the shim job can also adjust the... Um, spacing from side to side of the gears to adjust the alignment with the teeth of the motor if you're having issues. Usually, if it's correctly shimmed, it'll just be fine. Um, 
you know, it's it's not a thing that you have to worry about too much other than going, oh, I probably shouldn't shim this bottom gear like too high or too low, right? We don't want it to be all the way towards the top or all the way towards the bottom. Um, but yeah, the in terms of it helping, it it's required for the gun to function. Um, in terms of, oh, well, like, you know, how good a job do we have to do? So when I'm working on it, um, I literally use, I draw a little, sketch a little diagram of the gears. I keep track of what shim sizes I've put in top and bottom. And I use, uh, the smallest shims I use are 0 0.01 millimeter. No, 0 0.10 millimeter. Yeah. Uh, so um, they're quite fine. And they're very important um, in terms of getting a gear line. Uh, a factory shim gearbox will usually use uh, significantly less fine tuned shim jobs. Um, they're sort of like, yeah, stick in two of these, two of these, two of these, and two of these. Good. Um, partly, they're a factory. They know exactly what tolerances their stuff is theoretically machined to. Um, but also, I'm trying to get a precision thing out of putting usually um, high-speed gears and high-torque motor <laughs> into the same thing. The factory is going, all right, stock gears, stock motor, done. Yeah. Um, and the big difference there is, well, so my team's guns are generally designed to run on sort of a, like we would like to get the best trigger response we can out of them. Uh, so that's a big factor for why I'm doing it. Um, in terms of why the factory's doing it, they care if it lasts for six weeks, right? They want you to get your gun and it shoot. And if your gun stops shooting two months or three months after you buy it, that's your problem. Uh, I'm shimming them so that ideally, like, you know, Phil's gun last year got built. He's taken it apart to lube it a couple of times, but he hasn't changed the shims. The gears are still fine. Right, um, and that's where we want to be with that. Uh, so that's sort of the reason to do a, a a tighter, finer, better job. So, how much time should the like, let's say, average person spend figuring out the shims on their gun? Like, is that something that you was like, hey, it's going to take you three hours, and you should be using those three hours, or how does that really work out? I mean, it's a little bit hard to say because um, it depends on what they're doing a little. Uh, so if you're upgrading your gun and you're going to put in new gears you should make sure they're shimmed properly because otherwise it's not going to work um you can watch there are a bunch of good videos on this um i don't have any to recommend off the top of my head but there are a ton of them out there uh that'll show you how to do it um the big thing is when you rotate the gears through a couple of cycles do you feel any tension do they um grind against one another at all uh, and you should do that when you're working with your gearbox, uh, you want to do that in all three or four, but really three possible alignments. So vertical and then the two horizontals, because if the shim job is allowing them to move back and forth too much, which is part of what you're trying to avoid, you're trying to lock them so that they stay centered uh, and stay aligned, uh, then you should probably adjust that. Um, and likewise, you know, and I'm, I'm being very cursory with this, I guess, but um, screw the mech box down tight and make sure that the gears still spin because if you put too many shims on it, they're going to lock at the axles and they're just not going to rotate. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it should take you, um, like, it takes me 45 minutes and I've done this a lot and uh, it should take you probably at least that um, unless you're really good at this or you luck out and get, you know, just, oh yeah, this is exactly the alignment I want right off the bat because usually it's sort of a... Uh, trial and error thing, right? So I start with the spur gear. You should start with the spur gear because it's the first gear you're going to be putting in. It's the one the other two mesh to. I have a specific shim height that I start those at and usually that I just use for those because it 
more or less what I want is I want it to be um, spinning freely. So if you just spin it with your fingers, it should spin for a few seconds um, without any additional input of force. Um, so it needs to be up raised above the Macbox shell so it's not grinding against the Macbox shell. But you want to do that with as little shimming as possible because if you shim it really high, it's going to mess up everything else. Um, and I work from there. And like I said, I just draw a little diagram and you know write down what I've shimmed them and that allows me to A, measure where I've put things as I go, not in the sense of like taking out a caliper, but in the sense of like going, oh yeah, I've made this this high, it should go, the next one should go the same height or a little higher and so on. Um, the other thing is that it allows me when I inevitably drop a shim during the process of putting the gears in to go, that's supposed to be on this one, excellent. Uh, instead of going, oh, great, I've ruined an hour of work, right? Yeah. And that's, that is a, a trick to, to have in your back pocket and subsequently an irritation to be avoided, right? And like we said many times before, when it comes to gun teching, like it's not magic, it's math, right? So if you are, like Pat was saying, if you're taking notes of where your shims are supposed to go, especially if you're opening up the gearbox for the first time and you can physically see where the shims are, taking a second to write that down so you know what you're dealing with can certainly be very helpful. Yeah, and like if you're breaking open a factory gun, um, you know, when you pull the gear, take all the shims with it, set it aside, take all the shims with the next gear, set it aside, take all the shims with the next gear, set it aside. Um, I've even gone so far in some cases to like just draw little squares on pieces of paper to put them in so that I know that I've, yeah, I've put that in the place that I wanted it to go great. Uh, because when you look at what they've done in the factory in terms of shimming it, you can look at that and go, okay, well, I have 0.2 millimeter shims. These are clearly not 0.2 millimeter shims. All right, let's check them against my other ones, figure out what the factory did. And that gives you a baseline for good enough. Yeah. Uh, and once you have a baseline for good enough, you can go from there to try to get, you know, good or excellent. Yeah. So as Pat was saying, definitely something to look into. If you are a brand new gun tech and you haven't done that before, uh, something to look into. There are videos, like Pat was saying, that are available out there. Um, it's something you can learn. I mean, obviously Pat did, and I know Jason on our team as a gun tech did too. And I'm something that I'm learning, at least I'm aware of, let's say, so I'm not making it any worse when I'm working on a gun. Uh, and that's a good starting point. And I mean, Phil's learned that, you know, um, that writing down those numbers is a really good idea because I don't know if you heard him laugh when I said, oh yeah, you know, so that you don't drop a show and go, oh God, where'd that go? But like, he's done that and I've been able to tell him. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's it's a good feeling not to have to redo that, I promise you. Yeah. So thanks for the question. We're going to move on to our last question for today. I just recently joined the Discord and just wanted to say thanks. Stormriders as a channel has been very helpful for me learning the sport of airsoft. Just a few months ago, I finally got the chance to dive into it thanks to some friends, but watching all the videos throughout the years from various YouTubers, I can say the initial jump was way easier. Well, thanks very much. That's exactly why we do it. Yeah, we're glad to help. My question is, how does a player get into the AK-style gameplay? I want to join my friends in the AK world, but I'm not sure where to start. Well, I mean, a good place to start is by getting an AK. That would probably be the, the first step, right? <laughs> that's, that's kind of the first place my brain went to, uh, as, you know, sort of snarky as it might seem. Like... All right, if you know you want to use an AK-shaped airsoft gun, um, you know, figure out which one you think's look, think looks coolest and buy it. If at all yeah. possible, like, you know, um, if, you, if, you're if you have friends in the AK world, like literally your friends locally who have them, then play a game with theirs, try theirs out, get, you know, a feel for whether or not you want an AK with an M4 stock, which I know is heresy, uh, or, you know, a nice full wood AK-47 or, you know, 
uh, folding stock, whatever floats your boat, right? Yeah. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think the intent of the question, without sort of being cheeky about it, is that there's a lot of content out there, both real steel and airsoft content, that focuses around the M4, right? M4 platform, AR-15 platform, around how to do drills, how to do reloads, you know, how to do shoulder transitions, like all that kind of stuff. And there's seemingly a lot less uh, about that exact same stuff for the AK-47, at least, you know, in North America. I was about to say, check Russian YouTube, question mark? (laughs) But that being said, one thing that, you know, I think is really important is that many of the concepts that we talk about in the podcast and we talk about in our videos, although we use the M4 platform as what we enjoy for Airsoft, a lot of these concepts still apply no matter what platform you're using, whether that's an M4 or an AK or an FAL or a P90 or whatever other kind of airsoft gun. Fundamental concepts like doing your ready-ups, right? You can do a ready-up with an AK just as easily as you can with uh, with an M4 or anything else. And when we've had training days, we have people who show up who are using, you know, AKs and using M4s and, and, you know, everything under the sun. The drills don't work any differently. What does work differently is, of course, the actual manipulation of that platform. So obviously, if you have an AK, you don't have a fire select by your thumb if you're a right-handed shooter. You have that fire select on your right on the right-hand side of the actual gun, and you can click, you know, click it up and down. I haven't really used an AK very much. I don't know exactly how that works. But so if your drill is to do a ready-up to bring the, the, the gun up, manipulate the safety, pull the trigger, and then once you acquire a sight picture, that will look a little bit differently with an AK. However, the concept is still the same right? Which is you need to practice the muscle memory of bringing your gun up on target, acquiring good sight picture, uh, manipulating the fire selector if that's something you're going to do, and then pulling the trigger. Yeah. I mean, I've done ready-ups with my Garand. I've done ready-ups with my Thompson. Um, You know, I've probably done ready-ups with someone's AK at some point over the last couple of years. Yeah, for sure. Um, And the specific details of the exercise vary, but the basic concept of I'm going to practice using this tool um, in these specific ways that are effective doesn't really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I'll tell you because I think it might be helpful in terms of answering your questions. If you're ever looking to into upgrades, uh, AKs take version three Mac boxes and thus version three parts, uh, which means you have a slightly different pool of upgrades, but AKs are uh, widely used and therefore they're very upgradable. The parts to do so are widely available and relatively affordable. Um, and you know, you're not gonna have any trouble getting AK mags that'll feed in your gun. There's a huge variety of them out there. Again, affordable, widely available, nice, you know, not a problem. And there's tons of tactical gear available out there as well that's meant for AK mags, right? So you look at like HSGI taco mag pouches you can get for M4s, but you know what? They'll fit your AK mags just fine. And then you've got purpose-built AK stuff, not to mention all like communist block gear that has been, you know, existing for the last like, you know, 40, 50 years that will, again, fit your your AK-47 style pouches, right? Or mags, I should say. You can get a super cheap sort of uh, Chicom style chest rig that will work pretty comfortably, actually. I've I've used them for running other people's gear. Uh, I think actually at one point while I was in between my um, plate carry and my current chest rig i think i've just borrowed one from kuru and stuffed m4 mags in it and was like oh they rattle whatever um and it they're comfortable you know it's it's a lightweight piece of kit so if it's sort of a oh you know i want the the mag capacity i want the chest rig i want to rock the look you can do all of those and still have like a really comfortable effective platform to work from 
Um, you do get to do the uh, AK mag bump, which does work in Airsoft and is super fun. But just like everything else, like we always say, you need to practice, Absolutely. right? So you can't just say, oh, well, I'm pretty good with an M4. So when I use this AK, it's going to be exactly the same. Obviously, nobody would ever say that because it's complete nonsense. <laughs> but the, the bottom line is, if you want to join your friends in the AK world, you're going to need an AK. But most importantly, you're going to really want to practice with that AK to make sure that you're familiar with everything, right? You're familiar how to do your reloads. You're familiar how to manipulate the fire selector. You're familiar on how to use your tactical gear. You know, if you're using, maybe you have a really sweet, like, JPC setup for your M4, and now you're switching over to a Chi-Com setup just, you know, for, you know, for the art, so to speak. You're going to have to practice with it right? You're going to have to make sure that you're familiar with how you grab your mags and how you do your reloads and all this kind of stuff. But the bottom line is you can get just as effective using an AK-47 as you can any other platform. It's just a matter of expertise, your own proficiency, uh, as well as just knowing how to properly use that platform right? How to move it around. So if you have a full stock AK, you know that, you know, you might not have exactly the same length of pull as you do on your M4, and that's going to affect potentially how you use it on the field. All of these things are things you need to be aware of and practice. But once you do that, you're golden, right? And you can do that. You can get at least accustomed to it a little bit at home doing dry fire and all this kind of stuff. And then when you hit the field, you'll be good to go. I mean, there are people on our discord who went to play airsoft their first game ever they had never played airsoft before but they had already done hundreds of ready ups and they had already done a whole bunch of weapon manipulation to get ready for their first game you can do the exact same thing with an ak you can do that with any any particular platform that you want to do whether it's an ak g36 an fnp90 whatever you want i've done ready ups with my garand and i will do some later like you know it's a, a different beast than the m4 but it works um, you know, it's just, you're trying to train that reflex so that you have, you know, half a second less time getting your gun from high ready to on target and it makes a difference. Yeah. And use that so that you can focus on what's going on in the field. So you're not fumbling around with your kit, trying to figure that out while other people are trying to figure you out. You know what I mean? Exactly. And one really great thing about the AK platform that I will mention, uh, in terms of, um, switching to it or taking it up, uh, is that. There are so many variations on the AK that you're also in that same space that you will get to be in with the M4 where you can build one for any uh, ergonomic type of human and any playstyle, right? Yeah. You know, um, I guess technically if you want to build a sniper rifle, you're on an SVD, but like barring that, you know, you can build an AK that'll serve you pretty well as an airsoft DMR. You can build, um, you know, a, a super short CQB AK no problem they're widely available um mm -hmm. you know and i don't want to get into like brands or anything right now but if you want sort of advice on shopping feel free you said you were on the discord so like pop me a message just you know at me and i'll come chat with you about it no problem yeah, absolutely. And I think some of the guys in the in this course have been talking about AKs in particular a little while ago, just because I think Stefan had brought his out to a game and we were all really impressed with the build quality and stuff. Still not for me, like it's not not particularly my aesthetic, not what I enjoy fielding. Uh, and I'm very, very comfortable with the AR platform and that's okay. Um, no hate on the AKs, it's just not really my style but if it's something that you want to get into or even if it's something that you're just curious about there's no reason why you couldn't you know either borrow one from someone or if you have you know the income you can certainly buy one and then if you don't like it to sell it off later we know airsoft still retains really good value after market um but the first step if you want to get in that ak world is get that ak and get using it right that's the yeah, that's the bottom line 
you know, try one, buy one, practice with it. There you go. Yeah. So we hope you found this sort of helpful and entertaining. I know for us, it's always fun to answer questions that you guys have. It, you know, our whole deal is we want to create content that is educational and engaging for you guys. So the more questions you have that you'd like us to answer, I mean, we have an opinion on just about everything. Um, <laughs> most of it, most of the time, it's factual. Um, but we're... Well, some of the time, yeah. But we're happy to share our experiences with you to make sure that you have the best possible airsoft experience for yourself at your fields. Uh, and if we can help you do that, then that's a, that's a win-win. So thank you very, very much for all the questions. Keep them coming. We're certainly going to do more episodes like this in the future. Uh, but until next time, that's it for us this week. And I mean, like I said, as always, we also love learning from you guys and getting to sort of think through problems you give us often lets us talk about stuff we haven't talked about in a while or think about, you know, how do you run an AK? Um, yeah. So thanks for that. And yeah, as always, have a great week. We'll talk to you guys uh, in about seven days. Take care, everyone.